0: the hardest physical drill i have most of my students do is stand still stand still and stand still in a very certain way which is legs activated feet pressing down into all four corners uh, we say four pegs of your feet the heel and the fore and the front by the toes legs activated hips tucked under so you're in a nice straight line. Shoulders rolled back and down, not in a high tense situation. Arms down by your side, straight. Fingers splayed. Head, neck in alignment. Standing tall like you're pushing down on your head and you're standing up into it. Stand there and don't move. And just breathe. And that's the hardest yoga position for all first responders, everybody in emergency services, because we are not good at just being with ourselves and being still. And so now people will start to move, they'll start to fidget, they'll stop their breath work. And so now we get to start working on that mental discipline part as to where we said that yoga, the original intention of yoga is mastery over your mind.
1: Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. All right, we took a little break for the holidays and for the January COVID surge, but we are back, and there is a ton of good stuff coming your way this year. This episode is incredible. Our guest is Eric Brenneman, who is a retired 13 year veteran of the fire service and now an executive member of the 501c3 nonprofit yoga shield yoga for first responders and the co-founder of breathe tactically yoga for first responders mission is to provide yoga training that is job specific and culturally informed their protocol trains in a skill set for processing the inevitable stress of a career in emergency services building mental physical and emotional resilience and enhancing optimal levels of job performance all the way from decision making to tactical skills we do so much in this episode. We talk about mental discipline and training the incredible bi-directional mind-body connection. We talk about autonomic fitness. We get into the power of yoga to improve performance under pressure. And we drive it home at the end with really specific detailed ideas for breath work and for types of meditation that you can start putting into practice immediately to improve your performance today and on your next shift. Before we get started, a reminder to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind Wire your brain for performance under pressure. If you don't have it, you can find it at Amazon or at emergencymind.com book. And if you do already have a copy, please consider leaving a review. It's a huge help for us to get our message out there. Okay. All that said, let's dive into this honestly, incredibly important episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, Eric, welcome to the show, man. Welcome to the podcast. It's so great to sit down with you. I've been a, a huge fan of what you guys have been doing, and I'm, I'm really excited to dig in.
0: YFR is the pseudonym for Yoga for First Responders, which I just go off YFR once in a while, but I realize that people don't know what that means. But Yoga for First Responders <laughs> is a mouthful, so I shorten it down to YFFR for, for those listening in.
1: Love it, man. Love it, man. And let's start there. Why don't you tell folks who maybe don't know about you guys what it is that you're doing, what you're about, what your mission is, and we can dig from there.
0: So my name's Eric. I'll introduce myself first. Uh, I was a firefighter for 13 years, riding the truck in the Midwest. Uh, Left the fire service about three or four years ago. I know people can't see me, but I'm rocking a sweet beard now. That was not on my face (laughs) when I was a firefighter. That was not allowed when I was riding the truck. I was a member of my peer support team and company officer. So my job really was to take care of my guys, my men and women, and learned a lot about reactive measures on how we can handle the stress and trauma that we see as first responders. But we always had to wait for people to get jammed up, right? I mean, that's what peer support is. The really, really good ones are teams that may go out and proactively ask some questions and stuff, but you're not hunting for problems. And so you wait for your people to kind of get jammed up, whether it's drinking problems, marital problems, gambling problems, drug problems, whatever it is, it's trying to numb the pain, quite frankly. And then they come to the peer support team and ask for help. And we provide resources for them. Well, my training chief learned about yoga for first responders from Olivia, the founder and CEO of the, of the organization and brought it into our organization on a mandated basis for about six months, pulled off one of our training days, every tour and put, in this protocol. And when I learned about this, my mind was honestly blown because everything that was put together in this organization of this program was evidence-based. So it's not anything that's too woo-woo. And from a yoga concept, if people hear the word yoga and they're already thinking about hitting the pause button on the podcast, stop. (laughs) It's not a whole lot of woo-woo stuff. We're going to go into a lot of evidence-based practices as to why what we do works. And the most important part of this is it can be a proactive training tool so that we can actually respond better to the incoming stress. It's inevitable. We're going to have stress and trauma in our jobs, in our careers, in our lives. And so we can actually train our nervous systems to have a better response to that stress so we can better perform optimally and hopefully never have to use like tools such as peer support uh, at some point. And so that's kind of a nutshell of who I am and what the mission of yoga for first responders is kind of tied together. So our tagline is that uh, we are a 501c3 nonprofit. Let's start with that. Whose job is to give this tool to law enforcement, fire service, EMS, dispatchers, active law enforcement, or excuse me, active duty military. And I've always often thought, Dan, from your world too, that emergency departments has, having been a firefighter and medic transporting people into the emergency departments, that the emergency department is kind of that last link of mm-hmm first responders. So we start from basically dispatch through uh, emergency department. We have as a small but mighty nonprofit, we have to draw the line somewhere. I mean, everybody Mm -hmm. in the world could use this tool. And so that kind of last stopping point that I want to explore is that emergency department world. Then where we transition from you guys take care of the patient, secure them, get them a little bit more packaged up and then shift them off into surgery in the into the mm-hmm. inpatient world. But it's kind of that transition point in my opinion. So our tagline is that we are training people in a protocol to process stress build mental, physical, and emotional resilience, and enhance optimal levels of performance, which is critical because people think yoga is just about down regulation, but we can actually do some really cool training in the body and in the mind and in the nervous system so we can be better at making decisions under stress. And so I'm sure we'll dive into that uh, as we go through.
1: Yes. Strong yes. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Want all of that. I think that's such a a critical thing. And just and right away thinking about this idea of proactive preparation versus reactive sort of like rebuilding and recovery. I think that's such a, a fascinating and completely underutilized piece when we think about performance under pressure, at least in some of the worlds, right? Like I yep. think you see that in the sports world and the high performance athletic world a lot more than you see that in the emergency services and emergency medicine worlds, right? Like I'm used to seeing athletes being like, yeah, I'm prehabbing, right? I'm like yeah. putting in the work to strengthen the different systems that I know it's going to rely on to do this thing. For us though, the story is similar to what you were saying, more of a wait for something to go wrong and then try to fix it kind of approach. And
0: And to be fair, that's what we get paid to do, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we get paid to be reactive people uh, by nature. Uh, A problem comes in, you react and respond. And so that's how our mentality is trained. And so for us to then go and try to be people that take that proactive stance is a very different mindset for a lot of people in our community in my
1: opinion. Yeah, but it it's interesting though when you think about the way that we approach that, we know that preparation is important and necessary to do our job, right? Like I'm not a firefighter. I've never been a firefighter, but I'm sure one of the first things you do when you get on shift is you check your gear.
0: Right? right you check your, check gear, your gear before gear. you go on a check on a rig. call.
1: Yep. You figure out what's going on. You get everything ready because you know that that makes an enormous difference in your ability to perform. Yeah. Same thing with me, right? When I was working in a small shop, one of the first things I did every day is you'd go in and you'd look at the backup airway equipment to make sure the bougie was ready. And right. it got to the point where my my nurses had such a kick out of it that they like left me a bougie on my desk every day I'd show <laughs> up and I'd be like, "Yes, I have accomplished thank something." Thank you, right? Thing. Right? Like, thank yep. you. And I think you know, like, when I look at my team that I'm working with. Now at LA County, like we have a designated role for the PGY2, the post-grad year two uh, level, who comes in and stocks every room as sure. one of their first jobs. And that that sense of we know preparation is important, but we don't do a good job at bridging that thought back into ourselves as humans.
0: Correct. So that's actually think, a, very, a very valid point. I mean, we train every day, right? That's your that's your job. You train through mm-hmm. Academy. Every day you get your rig ready to go, you check your equipment. We've been on plenty of calls where uh, the nursing home did not check their equipment. And so it's just a failure of equipment was the only reason why the fire department showed up, right? So you learn to do all of that. But, and we even train proactively, as from the fire service standpoint, mo- a lot, most men and women on a physical standpoint, right? right? We have to be physically fit to do our job. People say the day you took the oath of, to be a firefighter, you lost the right to be unfit to be out of shape because I like the, that. because you have to have a certain level of fitness to drag people out of burning houses, to move hose, to do anything. I mean, you have to have a certain level of fitness. And so that is proactive training to be physically fit for your job. But we do skip on the proactive mental health. And wellness training, and that's where I wrote an article a few uh, years back for a trade journal. That I like to punch people in the nose with this question because I'm a huge advocate for mental health wellness now in the fire in, in the emergency services, having done this job for four and a half years or so and working with tens of thousands of first responders. And the question is 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 mental health wellness resilience training more important than short term tactical skills? Because short-term tactical skills will keep you on the job. They will help you survive in that short term. But if you're off duty from a mental health wellness issue, your short-term tactical skills are useless. If you're at home because of one of those reasons, the short-term skills, you can't put them in place. You're not on the truck. You're not doing your job. You're, you now have to take care of yourself so you think you can go back and serve. It's that whole concept of you have to fill your cup before you can serve others, right? And so, I mean, the whole purpose of the question is just to punch people in the nose and get a reaction and to get thoughts and to get people to start thinking that, oh, we're training short-term tactical skills in fire academies, police academies, uh, military academies, but we're not even touching on mental health, wellness, resilience training mm-hmm. at that point.
1: So I'm like 90% sure I understand what you mean by this, but I want to make this yeah. explicit. Short-term tactical stills in this context means what? Yeah.
0: So I would say like hose drills, throwing ladders, uh, self-rescue gotcha. rescue techniques for you, dropping airways, dropping tubes. I mean, it's the short-term those skills that you have to use on a daily basis, that's very, very critical for your job. You have to Mm -hmm. learn them. You have to be trained in them. But if you're not also taking care of yourself, if you're not also finding ways to train that perform optimally under stress to make sure that you are prepared for the inevitable, inevitable stress that's coming in, those skills that you've learned adopted along the way, they were good when you had them. But if you're at home not working, they're useless, unfortunately. And so you have to find that balance between both. And so we have a a, a saying that we want our program, our protocol, mental health wellness training to be from recruitment. So people know what they're getting involved in through retirement. It can't stop. It It cannot just be while you're on the job. There's a huge loss of identity, a loss of self in the emergency services world when somebody retires. I mean, four years later, I'm thankful I've worked with the community I work with, but I still have a hard time not saying. I am a firefighter. And people will say, oh, once a firefighter, always a firefighter. Once a cop, always a cop. Once a doctor, always a doctor, things like that. But that loss of self, that loss of identity is a huge issue for those that are no longer in that job. And so that's why I say you have to have this kind of tool, this kind of skill set from recruitment through retirement. Because it doesn't stop just because you stopped working.
1: That is such an interesting point. And I think that that sense of identity and that sense of self is one of the mechanisms that we use to adapt to the stress and pressure of what we see, right? It becomes easier to handle the suffering and the danger and sometimes even the horror of what we go through when it's not just, oh, this is my job, when it's, this is who I am as a person, right? right? I am Dan, an emergency doctor, and I am here serving today. Feels very different than like, oh yeah, I'm showing up and doing this work right now. And I, sometimes that's very adaptive and sometimes that's incredibly maladaptive. And, and I, I hope we can like sort of wedge ourselves into that question a little bit, because I, I think this idea of how can we prepare individuals and teams better to not just perform in that moment better, but if you take the integral of their service over time and their life over time to improve both of those with what we're talking about.
0: Yeah. At the end of our in-service trainings, our instructor schools where we teach people our protocol to go back into the world and teach us to their Agencies. Oftentimes, people are like, "Man, everybody could use this tool." They're like, "You should call this like yoga for the people." And I chuckle a little bit I and I laugh I as like, "Or just yoga because that's because that's what it is. It's just yoga, and I, not to trivialize it, but it it it's yoga." And so I'd be remiss if I didn't talk into a little bit about the misconceptions of what yoga is, because we are talking about this. We're diving into these deep tunnels that are very, very important, but already people tuning in are hearing the word yoga and their minds are already thinking like, well, I I don't have a yoga body. Yoga is not for me. I can't touch my toes. Let's paint with broad brushstrokes here. I mean, not to offend anybody, but broad brushstrokes. My wife is a six foot tall, skinny, curly haired white girl. (laughs) And that's what most people assume that yoga is for. I mean, if you Google search and hit images for yoga, 99% Ninety-nine percent of the pictures are of women on a beach in a sunset with their legs wrapped around their head uh, like a scarf. And then you say, "Hey, uh, Mr. Firefighter, Hey, Mrs. Law Enforcement Officer, We're going to do yoga," and they're going to be like, "No, we're not. <laughs> that's not. That's not for me." Because they think it's about Lululemon pants and Starbucks pumpkin spice lattes. Let's be honest. Uh, if we're if we're getting down to the misconceptions, and the reason why there's these misconceptions is because of fantastic branding and marketing. Quite frankly. I mean, yoga in the West, trendy traditional yoga, your hot studios, is billions of dollars in business. It's by no mistake that they're marketing to these people with extra disposable income, but also by doing that, they're isolating a huge swath of, I'm going to call it the warrior population, emergency services, active duty military, first responders, that then say yoga is not for me when if you boil it down to the brass tacks of traditional yoga, which we can actually show the lineage. Just You said a lot of your audience is jujitsu masters. I've just actually finished the book, Breathe, The Life and Flow by Ricks and Gracie because fantastic book. And if you read through that, he's got, you can read the lineage of the of the jujitsu, right? And you can see where he studied and who he, his masters were. And so we actually have pictures that go back to Olivia's teacher in India, who then knows who his teachers were. And we have that same lineage through our protocol essentially. And so we argue that we're actually taking our yoga protocol back to traditional yoga than what the concept of what yoga is here in the West. And so we boil a lot of that away.
1: Let's break into that then for a second. And what is yoga?
0: Great question. So we, if you go to the yoga sutras, which we don't, honestly, we don't quote even during our yoga classes. So we get rid of anything that could elicit an eye roll from our population. So anything that is considered woo woo or mystical, get rid of it. Don't even bring it up. You don't need to. So what we say that yoga is, the original intention of yoga is to have mastery over the mind and optimal functioning of the entire psychophysiological system. And so those are some big words, but it's discipline of the mind because if you don't have control of your mind, your mind controls you. And if you don't think that your mind controls you, I just had this happen the other day. I'm a huge football fan from one team in particular that had a devastating loss in the playoffs this last week. And I'm sure that most people can reference that I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. And so, Sorry. right. That was a tough one. That was a tough, <laughs> tough roller coaster loss. But I noticed that after the game, I tried to go to bed, but my mind was so spun up about like, oh, what if they would have done this or what if that? Or... And so my mind spun, I lay there for about two and a half hours with my mind just spinning out of control when I wanted to be sleeping because I had an important meeting the next morning. And so my mind at that point is controlling me rather than me controlling my mind. And so that's human nature, right? I'd have all of these tools in my pocketbook. And so I could sit there and be aware uh, that this was happening and know why it's happening and try to put some tools in the place to stop it, spin it down, down, regulate it. So we have to have discipline of our mind. It's the imp- first part of yoga. And then second part is optimal functioning of the entire psychophysiological system. So psycho, again, optimal functioning of the brain and nervous system, and then of the entire physiological system, our body, our muscles, or that small motor movement. So we know that stress causes our prefrontal cortex to start to shut down a little bit so that when that happens, our decision-making is blunted. uh, Our ability to communicate is blunted. Those are two things alone. If I had mentioned that to people in the emergency department or first responders know that those two things are critical in the most stressful moments of our jobs. And so, if those start to go offline a little bit, we have to find a way to re engage our prefrontal cortex and get it out of the amygdala and pull it back. And so, we can do that with yoga by working on implementing a little bit of a stress response and then retraining the nervous system, how it responds to stress, which is some really cool stuff.
1: So, this is so important. And, and I think this is a really critical bridge to make, especially if somebody's listening to this who doesn't have a background either in yoga or martial arts practice which is that you see this and you see people putting their body into shapes or kicking a bag or something like that. And the difference is that when you really dig into it, yeah, you're doing these moves, but what you're doing is sharpening the connection between your mind and your body in multiple directions and laying the groundwork for pathways and roadways that you can walk along under stress and pressure mm-hmm. and you have to do that outside of high pressure environments so that you have it ready to go and function in high pressure environments and you're building at a basic level you know you could call it muscle memory but really it's it's these deep connections bridging the body and the mind as you do these poses and these moves yeah. and that's maybe not obvious if you've never actually participated in that before yeah so how do you start that and I guess what I mean by that is you take somebody who has never done this before yep. and you try to tell them, Hey, you know, do a downward dog here. Cause it's going to help you in a fire. What, right. How does that work?
0: Right. It doesn't, <laughs> 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 it doesn't, it, it doesn't quite frankly. And this is my response back. I mean, I get the people that love what we do most of the time are the high speed people. People. I mean, they're the SWAT operators. They're the top-level mm. firefighters. They're the high-level military personnel. You just had Rich Devine on the podcast. People mm-hmm. like this understand what we're doing. It's the high-speed folks understand this connection. And so you have if- to,
1: because it's so obvious when you're when you're functioning at that high-speed level that unless you train your body and your mind, there's not a chance in hell you're going to actually perform it the way you want to.
0: Correct. And so it's, we're starting the prehab, quite frankly, here on the yoga mat. We're training here in the space behind me in a safe space for those high speed uh, situations. And so I tell people all the time so let's break into the YFR protocol and how we start. We start with tactical breath work. That's our foundation from the Sanskrit word for and to show that we're true traditional yoga. The Sanskrit word, which we would never use in one of our yoga classes, is pranayama. It's a lot of people have heard that word as the world is starting to turn towards breath work and turn towards some of this stuff. Thanks to quite frankly, guys like Wim Hof, Uh, a lot of people understand that breathing or Honestly, Dr. Huberman out of Stanford is pushing Absolutely. a lot of this, a lot of this stuff or James Nestor's book, breath. There's a lot of attention being put onto breath work. And so they've all used this term pranayama. And so I'm actually excited that that term is starting to lose a little bit of its mysticism uh, from a yogic standpoint, but that's the, the basic is. And so we've changed the word pranayama to tactical breath work. Cause if you put the word tactical in front of anything, that makes it super cool. You know that And we, a tactical backpack. Great. I want five of those, uh, a tactical belt. Give me six, you know. I mean, so we put the word tactical in front of breath work, and it now makes it cool practice.
1: Absolutely, uh, we're yeah. not
0: naive. We're not naive. We know how it <laughs> works. <laughs> uh, so simple
1: people in the emergency world here totally agree. Yeah, tactical anything. Let's do it.
0: <laughs> so we start with tactical breath work, and we say that this is the golden thread of everything we do because with the breath, we can actually then impact our nervous system in our mind. So we're actually working from the bottom up. We're using the, the breath work, diaphragmatic breathing, massaging the vagus nerve to have an impact on the mind to hit into the parasympathetic response instead of the sympathetic response. And so that's the crutch of everything we do. From there, we move into the physical drills. And so this is what people think of when they think of yoga, the the weird postures, a warrior two, everybody's heard of a warrior two or a downward dog. These are mechanisms essentially to that everybody thinks, oh, I can't touch my toes. I can't stretch. I don't want to, I'm not a stretchy person. Those are secondary benefits, quite frankly. That's the icing on the cake, folks. What we're actually doing with the physical drills is the hardest physical drill I have most of my students do is stand still, stand still, and stand still in a very certain way, which is legs activated, feet pressing down into all four corners. uh, We say four pegs of your feet, the heel and the four front by the toes, legs activated, hips tucked under so you're in a nice straight line. Shoulders rolled back and down, not in a high tense situation. Arms down by your side, straight. Fingers splayed. Head, neck in alignment. Standing tall like you're pushing down on your head and you're standing up into it. Stand there and don't move. And just breathe. And that's the hardest yoga position for all first responders, everybody in emergency services, because we are not good at just being with ourselves and being still. And so now people will start to move. They'll start to fidget. They'll start their breath work. And so now we get to start working on that mental discipline part as to where we said that the original intention of yoga is mastery over your mind. We get to see how long your mind is actually disciplined before you start to think outside the box or start to think about your to-do list or what your kids are off doing or whatever it is, because I can watch your fingers. And if your fingers are not stick straight, splayed, like I told you to, it's the furthest part away from your mind. So they'll start to bend a little bit. And I will know that you have lost connection between your mind and your fingertips. And so I get to then coach you, Hey, you're no longer with me. You're checked out. You're doing something else. Are you engaging your three-part breath? Are your fingers straight? Then they're like, oh shit, I screwed up. And so that's the hard physical drill. So then once we master that, then we move on, then we move on to literally standing with our hands above our head, same posture, just hands above your head. You never have to go past standing still, quite frankly, to have done a yoga class. You never have to. That's part of that's part of what the misconception of what this is. Now there is breath and movement to tie it together. So a true traditional yoga class, I've done one for 60 minutes from a master teacher, which was literally taking my hands from the side of my body to over my head, mm-hmm. coordinated with breath work, very, very specifically with a certain method. So you're tying that mind into the hardest one because quite frankly, you have to be so checked in. For 60 minutes to do that similar movement. And so we get into every time that you master a new position, you're basically up-leveling it. So if you're maintaining your mind, if you're maintaining your breath, if you're maintaining that discipline of the body, then we can continue to push your envelope by adding new postures in. And so the other thing that postures are doing is, as we get to the, say, we call it a high plank position. It's a push-up position. Mm -hmm. I'm also inducing a little bit of a stress response into your body. I actually was listening to a podcast yesterday with Dr. Huberman, and I really liked this. He said that for all that we hear that's bad about stress, he said, stress is just generic, whether you like it or not. The stress response in the body is generic, whether it's a super traumatic issue or a bad email that came in, the body has the same initial physiological response. And so I'm actually inducing that stress response. If I put you in a high plank position long enough, even if you've done a thousand push push-ups, at some point you will stop, you will hold your breath. You'll more than likely start to clench your jaw. You'll more than likely start to shake and you've already stopped, lost the discipline. Your hands will not be on the mat exactly how I taught you to have them, which was fingers splayed when you're standing up straight. And so I will notice that you're starting to check out because your fingers are starting to curl in and everything else. And so then it's my job as your yoga instructor to come back and be like, all right. Now is where you need to clock into that three part breath, that tactical breath work, right here, re-engage the mind, reengage the breath work so that you can hit that go from that sympathetic nervous system response, that stress response back into hitting the parasympathetic. And that's where we're starting to train what uh, a terminology that uh, Stephen Kotler and his group out of the Flow Research Collective is calling autonomic fitness. So we all know physiological fitness, we all go to the gym and push our muscles and run and everything else. But autonomic fitness is training our nervous system to respond to the stress response in the way we want it to, rather than the way it wants to. And so throughout the physical drills, every time you master that one, great, we'll up level it, we'll take you to the next one. We're going to keep pushing that 4% of your, of your window of tolerance so that we can keep up leveling how you react to that stress. And every time we do that, your mind's getting sharper the body's getting better. You're getting physically fit. You're getting more mobile. It's helping loosen up the small stabilizing muscles. We're getting cortisol that's stored in your muscle tissues out because we're moving the muscles coordinated with the breath work. And so it's super exciting stuff that's happening with those physical drills that look silly. But for us, we start with standing still, stand still.
1: Man, so, so much in there. We haven't hit the second
0: half of our protocol yet. So we're only halfway there.
1: I'm reminded of that quote by Seneca, right? Like, a gem is not polished without friction, and a human is not built without trials. And like to soak in that point of stress and failure over and over again in a location that is safe and allows you to feel what that drift of attention and drift of energy feels like and bring it back and repeat and bring it back and repeat is. I think the dream of human performance under pressure in a lot of ways, right? Like when we talk about the prepare, perform, recover evolve cycle, we're talking about spinning that wheel in small moments like that over and over again mm-hmm. and using that evolution to be able to prepare to do it when you're doing CPR on somebody, when you're in the middle of running a code, when you're doing the next couple of phases of stuff and then coming home happy and healthy from that as opposed to crushed by it. Right. And what you're describing about the microcosm, the ultimately small universe of doing that within and around a breath is, I don't know, I'm going to say breathtaking, but that's going to be corny. But I think that's like incredibly detailed and important and it's, it's so freaking cool.
0: It, it really, really is. And so we can dive into, it's exactly right. I mean, that's exactly what we're doing. We're putting the body under repeated safe stress and not to take anything away from the super elite athletes of the world, the CrossFitters, the NBA ballers, the NFL Ballers, I mean, these guys are elite athletes, right? These men and women, but we have to find a way that we can actually stress the mind before the body gives out. And Mm -hmm. so, if I'm doing a deadlift of 350 pounds, you can get yourself amped up, you can be mentally disciplined, and in that moment. But if my body gives out before my mind gives out because I physically can't do it, that's an issue. I can make your mind give up before your body just by standing still. Right. So and and so people miss that is like, oh, I, I do this in the gym. uh, we're working similar, but different things from like crushing it in the gym. I read, I'm a road cyclist. I love crushing miles on the road. That is working on my mental discipline without a doubt. But at some point my legs will literally, I cannot ride my bike any further (laughs) for my ability today, but I'm never going to fall down by just standing up. I could in theory, stand up all day long. If my mind is strong enough to get there.
1: Yeah. You're getting at a really important thing that we've talked about from a different angle a few times when we think about designing training for performance under pressure, separate from designing training for other things, right? So I can teach you how to drop a central line into somebody and I can teach you the mechanical skills of it and get you used to the pieces of it. But if I want to also train you to handle the stress of doing it on a thrashing confused patient with an INR of 10, who's bleeding all over the place, like that's a different set of skills and you have to design training for that because it's not going to happen naturally. You're not going to just get mentally tougher by being exposed to stuff. I mean you get some ability from friction, but most of the time you just sort of crumble or you end up with these maladaptive patterns to it. And in the same way that when you're doing a yoga pose, like one of my one of my yoga instructors you know always used to guide me through the idea of like, okay well what exactly piece of you are you working on right now and why? And are you doing that on purpose? Is that the right piece of yourself to be working on right now? And if not, what are you going to do about that? And I think that spirit is something that I try and sometimes succeed at and sometimes don't to bring into to a shift like that. What part of myself and my team are we working on right now? Is it the right part? Why? And what are we going to do about that?
0: Yeah. that's interesting. And what so you're actually doing by bringing awareness, to those pieces of, of what part should I be working on right now is actually re-engaging the prefrontal cortex. And so- because if you're in that spot, you're like, is it my hip that's tight? Is that where I'm, where I'm actually out of tight in to my hips? So I'm out of alignment in my shoulders, or is it start starting all the way down at like my ankle joint being too, not quite mobile enough. Mm-hmm. You actually then saying, okay, I need to touch on the outside of my foot and a worry too on the back foot. So instead of rolling in towards the inside of your foot, you want to press down on that back outer edge of your foot. You're firing up, again, the mind, working to the furthest edge of the body while you're in an uncomfortable position. And so you're re-engaging all those neural Mm -hmm. pathways to fire up that prefrontal cortex while your body's in a stress response. And so that's what's actually happening when you're bringing up the awareness. And I love that your teacher teaches that way, because that's true traditional yoga when you are working on awareness of those small muscular movements in an uncomfortable situation.
1: Structurally to me, that is no different than what I do when I teach one of the residents to intubate, right? Because you're talking about small muscle control mapping what your intention of doing to what you're actually doing and being aware of positioning structure, form and movement in the middle of a high pressure environment. And it doesn't look like warrior two from the outside, but that's sort of the least relevant part of it.
0: It's the absolute least relevant part of it. I put firefighters in their face masks. So a piece of equipment they use every single day. And then I run them through a yoga class Mm. and you'd be amazed. how many times people start to mess up their left foot from their right foot. I mean, gross body parts because they're in a new situation where the mind isn't used to it. So now they're in a stressful response, a higher stress response than normal, but using equipment they use every day. And I, I put police officers in high plank and we put their duty belts around them and, and not, not bring real firearms in, but put their blue guns in and their flashlights in and everything else, put them in high plank. So they're starting to get stressed out because they're in a yoga class for God's sakes. And this guy's yelling at them in a yoga class or whatever. And then I say, grab your flashlight. And how many of them grab the wrong tool? because their mind is not connecting to the motor movements and the skills that they have practiced over and over and over again, because they're now coming at it from the amygdala spot. They're not the prefrontal cortex is starting to shut down. And so they're starting to reach for the wrong things and getting flustered. And then it spins up even more uh, and things start to go sideways. It's like, listen, we are in a yoga class. Now see how bad this could translate out into the field, into the job, into one of those true high stress situations where you have got to make the right decision right now, or it's life and death. I mean, that's the people we're working with. And so we have, if we start to see that under stress in a yoga class, we forget which foot our left foot is. It's like, okay, folks, this is why we're training here. This is the training for the training, quite frankly, so that we can start to manipulate and play with those levers of, of our body and our stress response in a safe environment before we go out in the field and continue to train it.
1: The other day I was running a cardiac arrest and I was first on. And so I was doing CPR and also working on the transition from nothing to BLS level and then from BLS level to ACLS level as we got more resources in the room and everything. And at some point I switched off the chest and was running the code and firing up the DFIB. and I couldn't find the shock button. Now I'm a very experienced emergency provider with years and years of doing this everywhere from every emergency room you could think of. I've run a you know, I ran a cardiac arrest in a supercuts, like, like whatever it is, like, you know, I, I've probably been there and seen some piece of it. There's a lot I haven't, but there's a lot that I have. And if you've never done this, the shock button is a giant orange circle. Correct. <laughs> it's not hard to find in part because of this, because you just, it's so easy to lose track of this. And so if you don't feel, if you're listening to this and you don't feel what Eric is saying right now, if you're like, how could anybody rem- not remember their left foot from the right foot, or they don't know where their flashlight is. If you don't feel that viscerally, it's only because you haven't done enough time under pressure. Correct. And I guarantee you, if you have, you know what that feels like and you know what it means to be like, why can I not find a giant orange circle on this thing right now? And you have to have the ability to slow yourself down in that moment.
0: And so that then comes back to the breath work. So what can you do in that moment? to bring it back in there's a fantastic tool uh this is again pulling from dr huberman he calls it the physiological side and so uh, we train this quite a bit also having he reinforces what we've been teaching quite you know from the ancient wisdom sciences of yoga and he will fully admit that this is this is is western science catching up to eastern philosophies good
1: yeah we got to use everything we can absolutely
0: Uh, the physiological sigh is in a moment. So if you feel that stress response happening, if you feel that I can't find the shock button, I got to get, figure this out. If you get quite frankly, the email from your boss, I mean, let's not, let's not, if you want to fire off that email back, like immediately, like, boom, I'm pissed. I'm going to fire an email back off. This tool is so simple and you can watch your children do it. You can watch your dog do it. I mean, this is a, an innate mammalian reflex. So what the physiological sigh is, is you inhale completely once you fully inhale, you actually sniff in a little bit more. So it would sound something if I can make my inhale big enough, it would sound kind of like a, so you've got that big inhale all the way, that little extra sniff, and then a long, slow exhale out. What is happening during the inhale is, is that that little extra sniff at the end is actually popping open the alveoli set alveoli How do you pronounce that word? You're the doctor. I can never pronounce that oh, word. Oh man. Well.
1: i Al- alveolar, I guess I would say, but <laughs> the that's not at my the strong suit. Yeah, yeah,
0: not either. The sacs at the bottom of the lungs. Let's not try to doctor this up. So, <laughs> <laughs> the sacs at the bottom of the, of the lungs, snap them open because under stress, they actually start to collapse and stick together. And so by snapping them open, you're able to take in just that little bit more oxygen and then you're blowing off uh, CO2 and hitting the parasympathetic nervous system response uh, with the exhale, the extended exhale. And that's the key is that the exhale is long and slow. Uh, because that's what's driving the system to hit the parasympathetic response, which is going to slow your heart rate down. It's going to bring you back into this present moment. It's going to stop the processes of the sympathetic nervous system, which is the whole adrenaline dump, cortisol dump, everything else. You start to feel shaky. It's going to interrupt that process long enough that you can then think, okay, back in the game. Mm -hmm. And so we've been teaching this a long time in the fire service and even the emergency medical services and in the emergency departments, we've said it a little bit differently. If shit's going South on you or shit's going sideways, take a deep breath, unscrew yourself and get back to work. And Mm -hmm. so that that deep breath, we just didn't know what we didn't know why it was working or the science behind it. But that physiological sigh is that breath that now we can prove stops, interrupts. The sympathetic nervous system response. That's your in the moment tool. Now, with that said, what's also very exciting about the prehabbing of the breath work and autonomic fitness is, is over time, if you're doing your breath work and you're doing your yoga or you're doing your martial arts outside of work, your system will over time slowly default more to the controlled breath work, the controlled mindfulness in those stressful situations. It really will. You're training your body to react the way you want it to. And so you will still get those hits of cortisol and adrenaline once in a while, but you've got that physiological side interrupt it, but you're basically increasing your threshold as to when that's going to hit. And so you can do many, many more functions at a high level before you even tip into that huge stress response. And so you're, we're, we're increasing our threshold by doing the training before, just like any other kind of training. But now you've got a tool that will interrupt the process once you do tip over.
1: There's a huge parallel to this, I think, in in jujitsu and a lot of martial arts, which is that the first time you put somebody on the mat and they get in a position where they're uh, they're on the losing end of a position in one way or another, it's a very natural response to freak out a little bit. And you see everybody push their arms out straight as far as possible and try to just push the person away from them, which of course is like candy to a jujitsu person because they will wrap those arms up and break you in half. And you have to, over time, learn to... You learn two things, which is exactly what you're saying. One is you learn that when you are compromised, you learn a recovery strategy. And two is you learn how to slow your role and protect your space before you get compromised. And those are two separate but incredibly important skill sets that have direct applicability on a jiu-jitsu mat and in a resuscitation room the same way, right? I want to prepare myself and protect my space to do the best I can until I get to the point of real crisis. And then when I'm there, I want to be able to bring myself back and rescue it and perform. And I think it's a common misconception. Like when you watch somebody doing an emergency resuscitation, certainly when I started doing this, everything felt chaotic and everything felt compromised and everything yeah. felt forever. And the more training I have and the more time I have, the more I realize how slow and quietly and how much space there is in one of those resuscitations. It's only a few moments where you're actually in crisis mode. And when you are, you're going to act really well. Everything else though, you can protect that space and really, really function from an optimal position, mm-hmm. but that comes with training and that comes with pushing that edge a little bit.
0: Yeah. And so we're actually then starting to talk into the mindfulness thing and that the space between the stimulus and the response mm-hmm. is that space.
1: Absolutely. And
0: that space you can't change the time interval, but you can become more aware of what has happening in that space. And so that's what awareness and mindfulness is training is to be more aware of that space in the middle. So you choose the correct response to the stimulus that's coming in, or you help your body along with that. And so to go to your jujitsu point, uh, I believe it was one of the Gracies that said, if you can't breathe in a position, you don't own that position. And so we talk about that often that if you are in a high speed situation and you are not in control of your breath, you are not in control, period. Your body's in control. Your mind is running out. You are not in control. And so, a lot of the people we work with are big jujitsu practitioners as well. So, when I pull that card out of the deck, then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, right. This starts to make sense. I need to be able to slow my roll in these situations to get there. And that spot between stimulus and response is an interesting spot to be and to work in and figure out ways to work. Because this kind of goes into that la- the last couple of parts of our protocol as well, which is a good transition point. There are literally line of duty death reports out there in the fire service where the incident commander had firefighters die on the fire ground. And When they go back and replay the tapes and do the investigation, there is very clear that there's been a mayday called on the fire ground. Mayday, 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 firefighter trapped. But there's no response from the incident commander because there's so much input and so much stimulus coming in that the human mind literally has to filter something out. It can't take it all in. And so the incident commander says, I didn't hear it in the moment. Yeah. And everybody, the incident commander gets raked over the coals. How could you not hear it? It's plain as day on the radio after the fact. What's going on? You're a terrible leader. You're a terrible incident commander. You should never be in this position. These are people with decades of experience, but the human mind literally has to filter something out and it can't take it all in. And so what we train and why we train so hard in the mindfulness part of things, this is, is we want to open that gap up. Just a little bit. And by opening that gap, we say that we want to make the mind able to take in just a little bit more information. And this is something coming in from Mihai Csiksemihai with flow is that if we can get our mind into that access point, we can actually increase the amount of bits of information that our mind can take in when we're in that moment. And so we're training on this stuff to slowly, hopefully, also increase that window of the mind. And why this is important is is that Mihai Csiksemihai, who actually just passed away, he's kind of known as the grandfather of flow actually said that yoga is a coordinated uh, training experience for flow because it's working on so many different aspects of the subtle body movement, the breath, the mind, pushing that 4% envelope into a new space every time that you can actually train your body to easier have easier access to flow by doing yoga, which then hopefully opens up that space a little bit. And then we add mindfulness in. So at the end of yoga class, everybody's favorite part of yoga class is where you get to lay down and take a nap at the end. Uh, for, for everybody's heard of <laughs> everybody's heard of Shavasana at this point, even if it, even if you've just read it on a t-shirt that, I, you know, I'm here for the Shav- Shavasana. So everybody's heard of that. So when we talk with our first responders and military personnel, if I walk into a room and say, all right, folks, I'm going to sit you down and have you do a seven to 15 minute meditation. The, again, just kind of like when I say, I'm going to have you do yoga, They I'd be like, nope, wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Immediate resistance, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. right.
0: There's no way. So we actually are using the breathwork and physical drills also to activate the body so that we can actually recover better because we've all been in this situation, right? If you have a day where you're just sitting on the couch Netflixing it all day because you think that's the way to recover, and then you try to go to sleep, you can't go to sleep because you haven't moved your body at all. You haven't done anything active. And so if we actually activate and move uh, our body and our mind a little bit, it actually helps us recover better, more effectively. And so for our protocol, uh, we call Shavasana a neurological reset. Because that is exactly what we're doing at the Mm -hmm. end of yoga class. We've stirred up the body. We've released cortisol from muscular tissues. We've changed the biochemistry that's coming out of the brain, which is crazy, fascinating stuff too. And so we've changed the heart rate. We've changed the nervous system. And now we have to let it all reintegrate back in. And so we're resetting your neurological system. So we call it neurological reset. I don't just tell people to like sit still or lay down for five minutes. I'll be back and let turn off the lights and l- let you listen to music and throw some incense in. None of that happens. And those are all practices that we actually strip out because I don't know what smell is going to take you back to what incident. I mean, if you had a, a lot of people think lavender is calming. We don't use yeah. incense because who knows if your car accident that the paramedics just ran was a bunch a bunch of kids in a lavender bush. Lavender is not going to be r- r- real. It's calming for them.
1: Ain't that the truth. We don't yeah. play
0: music because our firehouse, we knew whenever a song came on the radio, we were getting a code that day. I don't know how or why it worked, but it seemed like more often than not, if this certain song came on the radio, we were going to get a code. So if that song came on it during a yoga class, that's not, so we, we get rid of anything that, that may quote unquote trigger or anything like that. Just strip it out. You don't need it. So for neurological reset, at the end of class, we do what we call single point of object meditations. That's not, we don't tell the cops and firefighters and military people this, we sneak it in uh, for them. And we find out that this is where they really, what they really, really like, because they can use these tools at home, in the bunk room, at night, on shift, if they just need to get a quick recovery, they can. So for example, one of them is a belly breath countdown, inhale, exhale one, inhale, exhale two. And you just count down from up to six and then you start over and that's your job for the next, however long until I tell you to stop, that's your job. And so it's really hard for the mind to think about anything else. And you'll know when it does because you're like, oh shit, what number was I on? And so then it's like, it's okay. If your mind has wandered, just start back at one. It doesn't matter. Uh, So that's one that we give another one that our firefighters actually really like from uh, being in the bunk room, or if they're actually on the rig, just on like a standby to call is what we call 10 sounds meditation. So with 10 sounds, it brings your external environment into your internal environment. So we label sounds like you're hearing my voice. So you're thinking male voice. Uh, You'll hear a car. So in your mind, you'll say car. You'll hear airplane. So you say airplane. So rather than labeling sounds, our goal is to listen for 10 distinct sounds and just number it. So as soon as you hear a sound, whether it's my voice or an airplane or a car, it's my voice. Great. That's your first sound. You say one. You hear, listen for another sound, two. Open up your ears further. Maybe hear a very, very quiet distance sound. That's three. Great. Now listen for the sound that's closest to you. It may be your own heartbeat. Three, four. And so that's 10 sounds meditation. So we give these tools for people to quiet their mind so that when it's running like a monkey mind or running like a puppy around, they have a tool to pull it back in and then train the mind once again in a a more quiet setting. And so that's what we do for neurological reset. And then the last bit of our protocol, we drop in a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy. So there's a lot of really cool research out there about how our mindset and about what we think changes our physiological response to it. So there's a great study out there uh, that's in Kelly McGonigal's upside of stress. Uh, Dr. Tom Chabby also taught or Tom Chabby, who's a a special force military guy talks about it as well. And it's the concept of a challenge versus threat. And so just literally changing or repeating in your head that this is a challenge changes your physiological response to the the incident. And so your body actually has a challenge response and a threat response. And so, and they're very, very different. And so if you have a challenge response, this is, or I kind of nerd out and have a lot of fun with it is a they are starting to find out a new chemical, not a new chemical, (laughs) science is just helping us find, (laughs) refine this chemical, quite frankly, um, DHEA, which uh, is a very, very powerful chemical that we're starting to learn more about. So, in a challenge response, you can still have your full stress response on board, cortisol, adrenaline, and everything else is going up, but you also have a higher incidence of DHEA. And when you have a higher incidence of DHEA, you're in what's known as a, a challenge response. If you have a, a lower incidence of DHEA, you're in more of a threat response. And literally your mindset and perception of that moment can change that DHEA level in your system. It goes a step further and they studied that folks with higher levels of DHEA in their system after a traumatic event tend to have a higher incidence of post-traumatic growth, where if they have a lower incidence of DHEA in their system, they have post-traumatic stress. And so when we're talking about the communities that we're talking to, that's a huge finding. That's That's a huge finding. That's absolutely
1: incredibly powerful.
0: Right. And it's so simple as to have that internal dialogue, which sounds silly as to This is a challenge. This is a challenge. So when we're in our yoga classes, we have people repeat it out loud. So that again, when the body hits the stress response, I'll say, is this a challenge or a threat? We have coached them that the response back is challenge. (laughs) Love it. Absolutely (laughs) Um, love it. And so we have them starting to talk and communicate under pressure in these weird situations, but we're recreating those neural pathways so that when they're in this spot, their body is defaulting to the challenge response rather than the threat response. So that's kind of the last thing. So we're actually affecting working our protocol from both the bottom up, using the breath to change the nervous, to change the mind uh, and, and nervous system response. But then we're coming from a top-down approach using the mind to affect the body. And so right there is that sweet spot that we call yoga for first responders is where it all comes together. I mean, we that's an introduction to yoga for first Whoa. responders over the last hour. And we can unpack so much of that so much more,
1: but. So amazing. And there, there's such a, Like underpinning what you're doing are these foundational, incredibly important beliefs that we don't do a good enough job teaching when we indoctrinate people into our culture and into our community, which is that we're wired a certain way, biochemically, neuroanatomically, we're wired a certain way to respond to a stressful event. That wiring though, doesn't have to be the end of the conversation. It can be the beginning. And we can learn to positively rewire ourselves through practice, change, breath, work, and movement in order to pick a different response to these life and death situations, not just spilling your, as you mentioned earlier, pumpkin spice latte on yourself, but actually the life and death stuff that we see. We can choose more and more about how we respond to that through the training that we do outside of the stressful moments that prepares us to function on the inside. And even beyond that, we can nudge ourselves towards post-traumatic growth by the choices we make today, before and after we're in these moments. Man, there is such depth and such power in that. And I wish a younger version of me would have hit that. I'm glad that I've hit it now. And I'm really excited about what we can do to bring that message to more and more folks who are performing in the communities that we're working with. So thank you for that.
0: Yeah, it's powerful stuff. Listen, at least in my world, people grab for the easy things. We grab for the booze, quite frankly. If I if let's ha- have an o- honest conversation
1: about absolutely, it.
0: we grab for the booze. We turn everything into a drinking event because it works. Quite frankly, it numbs it. it. It takes the edge off. But we've gotten to the point where I've literally been to health and wellness conferences that have a conference sponsored bar crawl in the evening to pay for the conference, right? Because because that's where we're at. Because at the end of the day, our bodies want to work better. Our minds want to work better. I mean, it, it, because that's where we are performing our best, we're feeling our best. That's where you want to be. Nobody feels great after a bender of a weekend. We don't. I mean, we do it because it gets us through, but if we could come away from our jobs feeling strong, feeling like we performed our best in those moments, man, that's a powerful change. And that's a powerful new script to be reading from, and it's it's hard though man, it's hard. I mean, changing this culture, as I'm sure you know, is like turning an aircraft carrier. I'm not in the Navy. I can only imagine that turning an aircraft carrier is a hell of a job and takes a long time and takes a lot of space, but it's it's hard work because quite frankly, even though our body is wanting this, it's wanting to thrive. It's still not as easy as going to the fridge and grabbing whatever it is in the fridge and sitting on the couch and thinking that that's relaxation or regulation. it's not. And so it's people like you and it's messages like this that I get so excited about. And I hope the passion comes through because it is getting the information out there. That's our biggest thing. Every day is just literally sharing our sharing this because it's free. You don't need any tools. You can do it at home. You can do it in the bunk room. You can do it in the emergency department. You can do it right before a code comes in or whatever before the shit hits the fan. You can use all of these tools in that moment right there. And it changes the outcome forever.
1: I love it. Eric, thank you so much for this. And, and thank you guys so much for what you're doing to bring this message forward. We a hundred percent will have to have around two and three of yes. this to dig more into the details of everything that we're talking about. But I, I wonder as we close this, if you want to leave everybody with a challenge, something that you want them to do moving forward today on their next shift.
0: Yeah. The challenge is, is simple breath work. I mean, to be honest, what everybody says, what can I do today? You can do breath work, and it sounds silly. It sounds crazy, but- we can dive into the science behind why breath work works. We call it a simple three-part breath. This is our foundation. This is the golden nugget of yoga for first responders. You can do this for three minutes, five minutes, while you're on your way to work, while you're literally changing uniforms. When you're going into Dan, emergency room doctor mode, right? People say when they put their uniform on, they know they feel a shift in their person. We talked about personalities or identity. They feel a shift. You put your uniform on in, in the locker room or on your way to work. And then also folks, use this on your way home. Use it before you go into the house to transition from emergency room doctor or firefighter or cop to husband, wife, spouse, mom, dad, Joe, Sally, Sue, whoever it is, whatever you're transitioning back into. Because it's just about emotional transitioning too uh, to different parts of your life. And so you don't even have to be that jerk father, jerk mother, that person. Leave it, check it, watch it. Do this breath work on your way to work, on your way home. That's the challenge. Three-part breath is as easy as this. We're going to, everything that we teach is through the nose, inhales and exhales. Uh, we There's a lot of science behind wh- why we believe nasal breathing is best. And so just play, humor me, breathe in it through your nose and out through your nose. <laughs> so with three-part breath, it starts with, you can even, while you're sitting down, take your hands and put them on your low belly. Uh, if you're driving, don't do this. If you're wearing a belt, you can feel that belt expanding. But it starts by breathing in through your nose and feeling that belly inflate. And exhale, the belly deflates. Inhale, the belly inflates. Exhale, belly deflates. And then we're going to move up into the ribs. And so this is starting to change the way we breathe. It may be uncomfortable for some people because you're not breathing like this normally. So then we're going to breathe and our belly is going to inflate and our rib cage is going to expand. So if your hands are free, you can take both of them and put them actually on your rib cage and feel that 360 degree expansion. Exhale, the rib cage deflates and then the belly deflates. Inhale, belly, ribs. Exhale, ribs deflate belly deflates. And then the next step is leave one hand on the rib cage, take the other hand if it's free, up to your chest below the collarbone. So then when you inhale, the belly inflates, the ribs inflate, and then the chest, not into the shoulders. Exhale, chest deflates, ribs, belly. Inhale, belly, ribs, chest. Exhale, chest, ribs, belly. Repeat that for five to 10 breaths on your own, it'll take about three minutes by the time you're done. And if you do that before work and after work, it's going to change your mindset. And in fact, while you're doing it, say you can say a couple things to yourself. You can say to yourself, for example, this is a challenge. I am prepared for any challenge is a great one. I am prepared for any challenges you breathe in. Or another one is I am calm. I am in control. So inhale, I am calm exhale, I am in control. And you'll notice what you're doing with that breath work is a three count inhale and a five count exhale. So you're automatically hitting that parasympathetic nervous system response. If you inhale, I am calm, exhale, I am in control. So try that for three to five on your way to work, on your way home uh, the next couple of days. And hopefully you'll email Dan and say, dude, this is working. (laughs) That's the goal.
1: Love it. Eric, thank you so much, man. Such, Such an honor to talk to you.
0: Absolutely. appreciate it, Dan. Thanks for having me. All
1: right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. And you can find it at emergencymind.com slash book. All right, good luck out there.